this evening, as we say, we're going to have a look at Revelation chapter 9. But we need to start, as we often do, with a recap. And we're going to do, as always, test Beck and Lil's uh, understanding of this. But here we go. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, what's our title? Multitudinous Christ. Multitudinous Christ. Revelation 2. Letters to the Ecclesias. Letters to the Ecclesias. And we've got four Ecclesias in Revelation chapter 2. They are? Ephesus. Ephesus. Smyrna. Pergamum. Pergamos. Thyatira. Sardis. Philadelphia. Laodicea. Lil was unable to resist going into chapter 3 as well. So that's great. And then we come to Revelation chapter 4. And that is a vision of which key thing the throne and then we come to revelation chapter five and we continue the vision of the throne and in the middle of this throne is what a lamb a lamb but uh, this lamb is also a lion lion so there's the lion of the tribe of judah but we also see don't we the picture of the slain lamb and it's this lamb that's able to open the book and so when we come to chapter six we see that the Lamb opens the book. The scrolls are open. The seals are opened. And so as the first seal is opened, what do we see coming out? What The first seal is the white horse. Well done. And the second seal is the red horse. The white horse tells us about peace. The red horse tells us about bloodshed. The the black horse tells us about famine, famine and the, the chloros horse, that pale green horse, tells us about death. death. So we see, don't we, a time of peace, a time of uh, the Pax Romana, the time of, uh, that Gibbon described as the best time you could live if you're going to choose a time in the history of the world. Then you'd choose that time, he says. So this time of great peace, but following that, as the empire begins to decline, a time of terrible bloodshed, the internal fightings of Rome, of famine uh, due to the terrible taxation um, and the, the, the challenges the empire faced with food. And then, of course, as the pagan Rome starts to completely collapse, we see the chloros horse. And then at the end of chapter 6, who is it that changes pagan Rome? It's like the, the heavens are rolled up like a scroll. This massive change in world affairs. It's a great earthquake at the end of chapter 6. And it's the time of Constantine. And for so many believers, they'd say, Hurrah! This is wonderful news. At last, we can worship as Christians and we don't need to be in secret because pagan Rome has been changed by the emperor, by Constantine. Sadly, although for a while it may have felt good for just a few short years, very quickly, the true believers, the saints, realise that the religion that the state of Rome wants is a Trinitarian belief in the scriptures. It is far from what the scriptures teach. And so for the faithful, the challenges keep coming. But in chapter 7, they're given the most wonderful vision that in all their difficulties, they're shown the blessings of the kingdom age. And so chapter 7 is a vision, isn't it, of the kingdom. Get, tell us about chapter 7, guys. What's it about? 
the 144,000, but really it's not 144,000. There is 144,000, but we read straight after that that we understand that that number is symbolic. It's actually about an innumerable multitude. It's about the blessings that we have by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that all people of all ages have been able to have if they will trust in the God of the Bible. And then we come to the next stage in the major developments of the Roman Empire. And the challenge that the Roman Empire then faced was the wild beasts described of chapter 6, now making incursions into the empire. The barbarians. I'm reading a good book at the moment, uh, which my dad kindly got me, called... Uh, the Barbarians, an alternative Roman history. Actually, it's incredibly interesting. It, it, it makes it clear that actually, and, or, or it helps us understand that the history that most of us just generally come across, and we think of the Barbarians as a barbaric, sort of crazy, wild group, that that's just not the case really, that what we're given is the history given to us by Latin Rome, which naturally presents them as such. But in reality, many of them were just as civilised more so than, than Rome itself. Um, in fact, many of them would have belief systems far more aligned to our own than the belief systems of the Roman beast system. So just interesting, uh, it's a book by Terry Jones, Barbarians, Alternative Roman History. Good book, um, worth having uh, a read. So chapter eight, we looked at last week, dealing with the barbarians. Let's see if we can remember the, the, the four major barbarians that, that the Bible records, and we also know that you can look at any secular history books. They will show you, and they'll tell you that these barbarians are the main players of the age. So when the, the, the first angel sounds and the, the trumpet sounds, the first trumpet of Revelation 8, who is it that we understand that the angel in blowing the trumpet, who is being spoken of? Alaric the Goth. Alaric the Goth. You've got to get these guys to speak up a bit. Alaric the Goth. That's a bit too loud, Beck. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so Alaric the Goth. And then after uh, Alaric the Goth, the second trumpet sounds... And who comes next, Lils, can you remember? Genseric the Vandal. Yeah, super job. Uh, Geyseric or Genseric the Vandal. Um, and actually, it's not easy, that, that the historical periods, but, but when you look at just simple historical sources, they tell us that he comes about first, even though his sack of Rome is actually after the next guy, who is... Attila the Hun. Attila the Hun. And uh, again, my dad, who... Eagle-eyed picked me up last week and said, "Pete, you said that the Huns, the till of the Hun, were from Hungary. Actually, they settled there, but the Huns actually came from much, much further um, east than that uh, in, in into Asia. Uh, so let me just correct that now while I can. And then the the fourth angel sounds his trumpet, and which who comes along? Odoacer. 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 So the Visigoth coming from the other territory of the Goths. And Odoacer, you look in the history books and you see that Odoacer in the year 476 brings to a close the might of Rome, the Western Roman leg of the empire collapses 
as the barbarians now move into the territory. But of course, Constantine was smart. And he set up, didn't he, another capital to the empire. Over further in the east, the eastern leg of Nebuchadnezzar's image. And it's that chapter, Revelation chapter 9, that we'd like to look at this evening. Because Revelation 9, we're going to see the eastern leg of Rome fall. So let's, let's read it together. Me, Beck and Lil, we'll read it round and... Uh, uh, or Beck, Lil and I will read it round and um, we'll, uh, we'll try and read really loudly and clearly and you guys can follow along. So Revelation 9. The fifth angel sounded and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. To him was given the key of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days shall men seek death, and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were as it were like crowns of gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. Their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates, as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots, of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions. There were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name is he in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollon. One woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year, for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand, and I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision, and those who rode them. They, were, they wore breastplates the colour of fire, and of sapphire and of sulphur, and the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulphur came out of their mouths. By these three was a third part of men killed, by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails like unto serpents and have heads, and with them they do hurt. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of, their, of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Okay, well thank you guys. So... I'm going to begin by um, using the slides here to give us um, a little bit of history that's going to help us in our appreciation and understanding of this chapter. So 
we think we're, we're sort of here following the, the uh, Roman Empire, and we've seen the, the four horse of the apocalypse, we've seen the barbarians coming in a few hundred years later, and now we move again a, a couple of hundred years later, uh, and we start to look really carefully at uh, the rise of Islam. So, what are we? At the end of Revelation 8, verse 13, we're in the year 476. And in the year 570, Muhammad is born. So chapter 9, we jump a few a hundred years, uh, you know, just less than that, isn't it? But actually, we see it slightly more when we see the events that we're actually witnessing taking place. But we're looking at chapter 9. If you want a chapter heading, the rise of Islam. I suggest to you as perhaps a good chapter heading for our chapter this evening. So look there on the screen. I've tried to give you some uh, facts from, again, a very basic history site that tells us about the rise of the, the religion of Islam. So we know, don't we, you know, most of us don't need reminding that that began with uh, Muhammad. Um, who was born in Mecca in Saudi Arabia. So you can just about make out Mecca, I hope, on the screen there, when you sort of look uh, on that, that map where you've got the word Saudi for Saudi Arabia. If you look to the left of Saudi, you can see Mecca there in the sort of Midwest of the country of Saudi Arabia. And Muslims believe, don't we, don't they rather, not we, that, that he was the final prophet sent by God. So Muslims accept um, prophets, uh, they accept all of the biblical prophets, but they don't believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was the son of God, and they believe that Muhammad was the last prophet. So what he had to say would matter more than all the other prophets. In 622, Muhammad travelled from Mecca to Medina with his supporters, and this journey became known as the Hijra, uh, and it marks the beginning of the Islamic calendar. So that's an important date, the year 622, marking the beginning of that calendar. Um, we know that some seven years later, Muhammad and his many followers went back to Mecca, and they conquered the region, and he continued to preach until his death in 632. So looking at the map there, he leaves Mecca in 622, he goes north um, to Medina, which you can see just uh, a little bit up in the map. It's a few hundred miles away um, from Mecca up to Medina. And he begins with a large group to conquer a lot of this territory. But he dies in the year 632. However, we know that following his death, Islam began to spread incredibly rapidly so you can see there on the map the islamic world under muhammad himself from 622 to 632 and you can see it's in saudi arabia in the, the territory of yemen uh, today but very quickly from 632 in the next 30 years or so it absolutely moved at incredible pace out into the middle east we, we noticed it went into egypt to, to, to Israel and to, to Syria um, uh, and out further to the east 
before in the, the, the next sort of 100 years or so, it moved beyond that into uh, a greater part um, of the Middle East and North Africa and Southern Europe. So it moved at uh, a really incredible pace. Now, after Muhammad, the first caliph and the caliphate systems were established, which is simply that the uh, rule for the um, territory was by, as it were, a king or a caliph. And you see the first was Abu Bakr, who was Muhammad's father-in-law and, and friend. But he died two years after he was elected and another caliph came onto the screen, uh, came onto the scene, um, who was another father-in-law. When he died, another came and another came. And so during the reign of the first four caliphs, Arab Muslims conquered large regions in the Middle East, we're told, including Syria, Palestine, Iran and Iraq. And I want you to notice that, that first Syria, Palestine, and then also beyond into uh, Europe, Africa and Asia. And actually then after that um, into um, some of the, 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 the territory of, the, of, of Europe. The caliphate system lasted for centuries and eventually evolved into the Ottoman Empire, which controlled large regions of the Middle East from 1517 until 1917, when World War I ended the Ottoman reign. So just looking at what the history books tell us there, we see that this begins in the year 622, uh, or 632, and takes us to the year 1917. Now, let me just show you something that I think is really interesting. The Muslim calendar began its dating, the history books tell us, in the year 622. All right, so that history website that we looked at, we're told that the Muslim calendar begins in the year 622. You look at that anywhere, you search that, look, look on your phone right now, what year does the Muslim calendar begin? It's the year AD 622. Now, their calendar doesn't work in the same way as the Gregorian calendar. It works differently. But here's the critical point. If you add 1,335 years using the Muslim calendar, you come to the year 1917. And you might think to me, so what? So what? So the Muslim calendar begins 622. We know that history website has just told us the Ottoman Empire finished in the year 1917, at the time of the First World War. You go 1917, and you take away 622, you have 1,335 years. Or, perhaps to put it more simply, you start at 622, you add 1,335 years, you come to the year 1917. Now, you, why is that important? Just keep a marker and go back to Daniel chapter 12. If you go back to Daniel chapter 12, and we don't intend to look at this uh, at all this evening. 
But I just want you to note that one of the time periods that Daniel is told that there'll have to be a need for the saints of the Most High God to faithfully wait while events in the world, events on the earth, are unraveled and worked out by the angels. Daniel 12 and verse 12. Blessed is he that waits and comes to the thousand, three hundred, and five and thirty days. One thousand, three hundred and thirty-five days. Obviously, we then use the Ezekiel principle of a day for a year. One thousand, three hundred and thirty-five days. We say that's one thousand, three hundred and thirty-five years. And isn't that interesting? That when you use that number from the time that the Muslim calendar began in the year 622 when Muhammad left Mecca to walk to Medina, that time period, 622, we add on Daniel 12, 12, and we come to the time when the history books tell us the Ottoman Empire is dried up, the year 1917. So I've put there... Uh, on the screen, a date converter that shows you that if you go online, I did this early this week, and you start in that year and you have 1335, it takes you to 1970. So I think that's just amazing, just to note that. Now come back to Revelation chapter 9, and let's start unpicking the first verse. So the fifth angel sounds. Remember that the fourth, the, the four angels before have been about the, the barbarians coming into the Roman territory. So now we're going to move to the eastern leg. The fifth angel sounds, and I saw a star fall from heaven. Now, we know, don't we, that a star, look in chapter 8 and verse 10, who was described as a star from heaven? See if we can ask these guys. Chapter 8, verse 10. Who was the star from heaven? Uh, Attila the Hun. Yeah. Good job. So Attila was a star from heaven. He was this incredible figure that uh, came um, as a, like a leader or a prince from the heavens. And he came into the Roman territory. So now another one's going to come. Another star. This star is going to fall from the heaven Onto the earth. So it's going to come onto the earth. The, the earth, we know, is talking to us about the territories, isn't it, of the Roman Empire. And to him was given a key. So what does a key tell us about in the book of Revelation? Who gets given a key? Just go back to chapter 1. And verse 18. Who's got the keys there? Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. Good job, Lil. Um, chapter 3 and verse 7. What's the key that we read of there? The key of David. The key of David. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he has the key of David. In, in chapter 1, we're told that he's got um, 
the, the, the keys of hell and of death. He's able to have control, have authority over the grave. So this star that's fallen from this political heaven to the earth is given the key, he's given authority of the bottomless pit. So, any guesses? Who's the star we're going to read off now? Muhammad. And he's going to uh, fall from the heavens. Muhammad actually grew up and had the privilege of being in uh, the royal court and the protection of that court. But when he uh, went out on his journey to Mecca, all that changes. He moves from the, the political heavens to the earth. But he's given the authority with the key of the bottomless pit. Now, we've got to unpick this idea because it just, you know, these days with our mindsets, we find ourselves thinking the bottomless pit, you know, oh man, this must be talking about something like, you know, the hell, hell or the grave. It's nothing to do with that. This is a symbol. So our job is to work out what the symbol means. So the revised version says, it doesn't say the bottomless pit. It says the pit of the abyss. Lil, what did yours say? I noticed when you read it, it said something different. When you, the end of verse one or verse two, I think you read for us, but it doesn't, what you, mine says bottomless pit. What does yours say? Bottomless pit. Okay, Lil, it, I, I lied. Lil says the same for that. What about verse two? He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. Okay, so Lil's has got, in her version, it says he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. Well, that's not particularly helpful either, but there is a word there that's helpful. So clearly I was missing it. I didn't hear things very well. Let's start, me and you, look at this and work it out. So the, the bottomless pit, in the Greek, it's the freer abusos, the freer abusos, and it's that way round. The, the abusos is the word that we've got translated bottomless. And freer is the word pit. So on the screen there, I tried to sort of help us out by writing that down. And you can see that that Greek word, abusos, the word bottomless, is used on seven occasions in the book of Revelation. They're listed there on the screen. Um, I think my uh, head might be in the way for some of you. So if I move that a bit. They're listed there on the screen in Revelation 9, which where we are, verses 1, 2, 11. In chapter 11, verse 7. In chapter 18, verse 8. In chapter 20, verses 1 and 3. So that word is used on seven occasions. Only, and this is the important thing we need to note. Only... In chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, do we read about the bottomless pit, or the Greek, the freer abusos. Let me show you, in, in verse 11 of Revelation 9, my version says, and they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit. Actually, the translation there isn't very helpful, because... Actually, we don't have the word pit. It's the angel of, and of course, we wouldn't just say the angel of the bottomless. 
It sounds odd, doesn't it? Which is why the Revised Version translates it differently. It says the word abyss instead of bottomless. So Revelation 9 and verse 11, the Revised Version says they had a king over them, which is the angel of the abyss. Okay? And that word is used on seven occasions, including verses 1 and 2, but only in verses 1 and 2 do we read in the Greek of the freer abusos, the pit of the abyss. Or did you notice that in Lil's it said the shaft of the pit of the abyss? Really, though, the word shaft is a helpful word for us to think of the pit because I tried to put a picture there to help you. The idea given to us really of the pit is like a well or a well shaft. So that word is translated in John 4. Do you you want to make a note? I put it there on the screen. The word pit, if I was making a note in my margin, I'd circle the word pit and write in the margin, John 4, 11 and 12, and it's the word well translated there. So John chapter 4, you remember that the Lord Jesus Christ meets the woman at the well. That word well in John 4, verse 11 and verse 12, the well, that's our word pit. All right? So, Stick with me. Let's see if we can get this together. It's also the word used in Luke 14, where the Lord Jesus Christ talks about a pit. He says, which of you have an ass or, or an ox? If it fell in a pit or a well, will not straightway pull him, off the, pull him up on the Sabbath day. So this word pit, the, the word freer, is the idea of a pit or of a shaft. Think of a well shaft, okay? So what about then the abyss, the bottomless pit? Well, the word abyss, look on the screen there, we've highlighted that blue, is translated for us in Luke chapter 8, and it's not a difficult word at all. In Luke 8, where we read of, do you remember the swine that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, deals with when he, he puts the, the unclean spirits out of legion? And he says in Luke 8, verse 31, he besought them that he would not command them to go out into the deep. Now, the deep there, where do they run? They run, verse 33 into the lake, right? So the deep in Luke 8, verse 31, is simply the sea. It's actually the Sea of Galilee. Look, verse 26. You see that they're at Galilee. So when it says that he would not command them to go into the deep, the deep is the word abyss. In fact, the Revised Version says he would not command them to go into the abyss. It's the idea of the sea. Okay, so with that knowledge, we now look at Revelation 9. 
And we see that the star that's fallen from heaven, that's been given the authority, he's been given the key <clears throat> of the pit of the abyss or the shaft of the abyss. He's not being given the authority of the abyss. Now, we know what the abyss is. It's there when we look in Revelation, when the, the, the sea. Um, we know, don't we, that the, 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 the whore, she sits on the, the waters. In Revelation 17 and verse 8, the beast that thou sawest was and is not shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. The Roman system comes out of the beast, out of the sea of nations. Out of the sea, the Roman system comes. The whore in Revelation 17 sits on the waters. But what Muhammad and the Islamic system that's going to come out of Saudi Arabia have been given is the shaft, the key of the shaft of the abyss. Or look at, the, look at the picture there of the way to the abyss. Do you see? That if you're going to get to the abyss, it's at the, the bottomless pit. If you're going to get to the abyss, you've got to go down the shaft. You've got to go down the well. And so he's been given the power for the to, 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 to go to, to, for the shaft, the shaft to be opened, that the way to the abyss, the way to where the woman, the heart sits upon the waters, the way to the Rome has been opened for him. So he opens the bottomless pit, he opens the shaft of the abyss. And there arose a smoke out of the pit. So out of the shaft. Okay. Here's our word again. That word pit is the, the word that we've picked up there on the screen in purple. So again, you, it might be helpful to just highlight that word pit with a color in verses one and two. Three times in verse two, once in verse one. He opened the bottomless pit. And there arose a smoke out of it. So the way there, the smoke comes out as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. So the shaft, the way from Saudi Arabia up into eastern Rome, the eastern leg of the empire that still stands, smoke begins to come out of the shaft. Amazing things <clears throat> are about to take place. Okay, so the fact that the smoke starts to come out, what does smoke speak to us of? This smoke that's coming out of the pit. Look at your margin. Have you got any references next to this smoke coming out of the pit? No reference. Genesis 19. Okay, Lil's has got Genesis 19. Should we have a quick look at Genesis 19? Genesis 19 is about the destruction of Sodom, which, when we come to Revelation 11, we'll see that Rome is compared to Sodom. 
So it's interesting that when we come to Genesis 19, we're seeing the destruction of Sodom. Did you have a verse, Lil? Genesis 19. 28. 28. Thanks, Lil. Genesis 19, 28. When Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, verse 28, Abraham looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. We're about to see God's judgments coming. The smoke talks to us of a picture of war that's going to come on the Eastern Roman Empire. Another reference to have is Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29, verse 20, where Moses records, he says, the Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name under heaven. So God's judgments, the smoke of war, is rising out of the shaft of the abyss, out of the shaft. This territory, Saudi Arabia, is one of the lowest points on the earth, south there of the Dead Sea, and the smoke is rising. As the caliphs after Muhammad begin to come and start to make incursions on the empire. Verse 3, there came out of the smoke locusts on the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Let me just play for you this short video. It sounds biblical, but as the world grapples with the COVID pandemic, the continent of Africa is facing another plague, locusts. As Nick Schiffer reports, the small insects pose a serious threat to food security throughout the region. In East Africa, the air carries two plagues. Locusts swarms with as many as 50 billion insects. As COVID-19 threatens the people, locusts threaten people's livestock and food. So we could play lots and lots of videos, couldn't we, that give us a picture of the locusts. And it's just remarkable, isn't it, that just this last few months, we've seen the most extraordinary locust storms in a generation sweeping through East Africa. Uh, that was the, the, the best video I could, I could very quickly find of locusts. But actually, those locusts came uh, through the Middle East, including, if you look, you look on Google, you see that Saudi Arabia had a massive amount of locusts this year, um, just like the plagues in East Africa. In addition, you do a bit more research, and you find that actually those locust plague, where do they come from? Well, many suggest they came from the region of Yemen, which you saw on our first map was part of the territory that the smoke here is darkening the face of the earth with. So just interesting that we've just seen something just this last year that, that helps us envisage this picture of the swarms of locusts. We should perhaps have just noted in verse 2, before we went on to verse 3, that the, the, the sun and the air were darkened. Well, we know, don't we, that the sun uh, is speaking to us of the, the, the political might 
um, of Rome. You think of the, the sun, the moon and the stars, somewhere like Luke chapter 21. We know we're talking about political bodies. So there's this darkening coming as the empire begins to uh, struggle. Um, in the year 634, um, Damascus was taken. Um, in the year 637, Jerusalem was taken. So just in verse 2 of Revelation 9, the most massive darkening is taking place um, in the region of the Middle East. As these locusts that um, we see the symbol begin to pour out of the smoke. It's just interesting that the Hebrew word for locust is armor, which we're told is very similar in its sound to the word Arab. Uh, So uh, the the Hebrew word for locust is arbor, which sounds very similar to the word Arab. Just interesting uh, little point to note, isn't it? But these locusts come swarming out. And yet we also learn that these locusts are as the scorpions of the earth. There's um, uh, just a map of the the, the movement of the locusts um, that we saw in February this last year. Um, And you can see that the territory of Saudi Arabia and Yemen was very much uh, having to deal with these um, tremendous locust swarms which is obviously fitting into what we're looking at here. But I want to note something else about locusts. So you, again, you just, I just did this this week. I googled the lifespan of a locust. And straight away we're told that a desert locust, which is the, the, the locust that we're looking at in the region of Saudi Arabia, lives about three to five months. All right? Now, this is really, really important that you note this. So a desert locust can live up to five months, we're told there, um, by the biologists, up to five months. And why is that so significant? Because we're going to be given a symbol of five months in verse five. And it highlights, perhaps, in a way that I think is pretty clear for us, why the book of Revelation keeps choosing certain time periods that are significant for the symbol. Uh, Brother Thomas, um, in Eureka, and uh, Brother uh, Robert Roberts, too, in the 13 lectures, talk about the decorum of the symbol that the symbol is given a very specific meaning. And the five months here, you might say, well, you know, fair enough, we've got five months. But actually, you'll see, have a look further down in verse 10, you've got another period of five months. And actually, you've got five months and five months, which is ten months. But the symbol of the locust, which we're being drawn to, requires five months. So do you see? It's extraordinary that the biblical record 
is inspired to use the symbol that's appropriate to use the time period rather, rather that's appropriate to the symbol. Isn't that amazing? So that's why we've got two time periods of five months. And it's important to us, we'll see when we come to other time periods, in working out what the, the times are, that we have to keep changing the way that we look at the time period according to the symbol that's in front of us. Okay, so these locusts, um, which we read are as scorpions, Come out onto the earth. Now, let's go to verse 4. It was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth. What's the grass of the earth? People. 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 So the people of the Roman Empire. Super bet. What, what's... Give me a, give me a ver, chapter and verse for grass. Isaiah Lills, excellent. Isaiah... 40, good. So Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8, would be a really good reference to have next to the grass of the earth, okay? So they're not allowed to hurt the grass of the earth. They're not allowed to hurt the people, nor any green thing, neither any tree. Only the men which have not the seal. So actually... They are allowed to hurt a lot of the grass, a lot of the trees, a lot of the green things. Because there were many, many men who didn't have the seal of God in their foreheads. But those who did have the seal of God in their foreheads, the true believers, the Islamic warriors, as they moved up through the territories of the Roman Empire, they didn't hurt. Why is it that they didn't hurt the true believers? Think about their faith. This was part of our homework, wasn't it? Think about their faith. The Roman Catholic Church was pushing which major doctrine? The, the Trinity. Now, the religion of Islam believes in one God. Now, clearly, as Christians, we disagree with them on a lot. But we would agree that there's only one God. And we've seen, haven't we, a great interest in the last few years Many um, Muslim people coming from lands such as Iran and giving up their faith as they read their Bibles and see the extraordinary uh, um, message of the Bible that they renounce Islam and they accept Christianity. And one of the things that's very, very easy for these, many of them now brothers and sisters, to quickly appreciate is that Christians believe in one God, not like the Roman church. So that's why in verse 4, 
the Islamic hordes, as they sweep into the territory, are not hurting the true believers because they believe in one God. They don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Verse 5. <clears throat> to them it was given that they should not kill them, but they should be tormented five months. And their torment was the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. So <clears throat> this five-month period is now given to us. But we just note in verse 5 that they should not kill them. So at this time period, at the time of the fifth angel sounding its trumpet, at the time of the rise of Islam from the year 622, for the next few hundred years, the Roman Empire is not going to be killed. They should not kill them. It's not until we come to the sixth angel sounding his trumpet that we're going to see the collapse of the eastern leg of Rome. So they're not going to kill them. So the note to make next to verse 5, they should not kill them, is that the Saracens, uh, that the Saracens is another word for the Arabs, that came out of this territory, the Saracens would not destroy the eastern leg of the empire of Rome. <clears throat> but they would torment it for five months. So what would five months be as a sign? How many days in a month? 30. 30. So 30 days in a month, five months would be, 30 times five is? 150. Oh man, we're having a maths test in here. 150. <laughs> 150 days. What would we then do? 150 days. A day for a year. Day for a year, Lil. 150 years. 150 years. So <clears throat> they're going to be tormented for about five months. 150 years. We'll pick up that symbol shortly because we're going to read more of it in verse 10. Their torment was the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. In those days shall men seek death. I mean, the, the, the way that the Islamic horde, the, 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 the Saracens, came sweeping through um, Saudi Arabia, um, up into the Middle East, and then out into the east to, to Iraq and beyond, and out to the west to North Africa, was just extraordinary. Those days men would seek death, and they wouldn't find it. They'd desire to die, but death would flee from them. It, would be, it was just an incredibly quick but extraordinary destruction that they wreaked, like locusts that we've seen this last year. The shapes of the locusts, verse 7, were like horses prepared unto battle. Now, it's just interesting for us to note. <clears throat> I'm, I'm just going to cough and see if I can get back to get me a glass of water. She's just taking the dog out. The, we're interested to note that the Italians used the word cavaletta, cavaletta, to describe locusts. Lils, what does the word cavaletta mean? Little. Little horse. Little horse. And if you think about a locust, and the way it looks, you can see like a horse, as it were, 
with its armor on, ready to go into battle. So the, the Italians used the word cavaletta for the locusts, little horse. So isn't that an interesting description that when we read in verse 7, the shapes of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. There we are, Beck. Can you pass me my drink of water? Look what she's kindly brought in for me. <laughs> <clears throat> really fortunate to have a really funny house. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> thank you, Ben. So, these locusts, which look like horses, are prepared for war because that's what the, 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 the locust looks like. It looks, doesn't it, like the horse with all its armour on. And their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold. Now, have you got a marginal reference next to crowns like gold? Have you got anything there? Their heads were crowns like golds. In Ezekiel? No? Okay. So, make a marginal note of Ezekiel 23 and verse 42. So, let's have a look there. Ezekiel 23. And verse 42, and we don't need to look at the context particularly here. I'm just going to read it to you. So Ezekiel 23, 42 says this. The voice of a multitude being at ease was with her, and with the men of the common sort were brought Sabaeans from the wilderness. And the Sabaeans, we're told, put bracelets on their hands and beautiful crowns on their heads. Well, we know, don't we, that uh, turbans were worn uh, by uh, men from the Middle East. But we notice particularly that it says that they wore beautiful crowns on their heads. Who were the people in Ezekiel 23 and verse 42? What's the name of the people? Sabians. The Sabians. So... This week, I looked at the word Sabaeans. I just typed it into Google. And straight away, we're told the Sabaeans were an ancient people of South Arabia. Now, where is Muhammad and the, the, the rise of Islam? Where are these Saracen warriors coming from? They're coming from South Arabia. They're coming from Saudi Arabia. So isn't it amazing that Ezekiel 23 tells us that the Sibians wore beautiful crowns on their heads. So when we come to Revelation 9 and verse 7, these crowns like gold were the sort of yellow sashes that were worn around the head of the Saracen warriors as they went out on horseback into battle. And we're also told more about them you think of the Roman soldier. The Roman soldier looking immaculate. They had no facial hair, the Roman soldier, and their hair was always cut short. Now look at these guys. Verse 8. They had hair as the hair of women. So do you see the contrast that the Roman would have noticed of these men as they've got long hair, 
as they come into the empire. Their teeth was the teeth of lions. They were a ferocious people, absolutely ferocious. They had breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron. Think of the locust again. And it, it looks like it's wearing armor uh, down its breast. So the breastplate of iron and the sound of their wings was the sound of chariots and many horses running to battle. And that's exactly the picture of the Saracen warriors going out on horseback in incredible numbers as they swept through the territory. And they have tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tail, and their power was to hurt men for five months. So just, just picking up this, this idea of the scorpion here, um, and of course the locust again, I want you to note that, that the insects that are indigenous to Saudi Arabia are the locust, are the scorpion. They're entirely appropriate symbols for the geographical area that we're looking at now. We've seen, haven't we, in verse 5, a five-month period. And in verse 5, we were told that that five months, they were to torment for five months, for 150 years. There's the calculations for us on the screen. But we're then told in verse 10 that their power was to hurt men. That word hurt isn't like tormenting, where they're inflicting horrendous pain physically as they move out of the empire. Rather, this is a sort of uh, a, a more uh, emotional thing, like a moral wrong men for five months. So what's going on? Well, for the first 150 years, you can see on the screen there, the territory is growing at this extraordinary pace as men have the most, you know, horrendous pain, as it were, inflicted on them. But then the caliphs rule, and as the caliphs rule, they uh, dictate to the empire. But like so many empires before, they get rich and they get wealthy uh, and they get fat. And so the power and might that lasted for... Um, the first 150 years began to, as it were, uh, dwindle. Um, and although they kept the empire, there was no need for them to keep ferociously going out, as it were, tormenting. Only, of course, the religion that they were teaching of Islam was wrong. And so men were hurt another 150 years. And then in the year 932, so 150 years after the year 632, which was the year when Muhammad died, and the caliphs began taking uh, the territory out. You can see there on the map the territory added by the first four caliphs, 632, it begins. We had 150 years, and in the year 932, so apologies, we had 150 and 150, 300 years. In the year 932, when we look in the history books, we understand that authority was taken from the caliph of Baghdad, uh, and no longer was there that central power that had seen Islam rise at such an extraordinary pace. And so we read in verse 11, 
they had a king over them. Well, that was the caliph, wasn't it, that was over them for this period, which is the angel of the bottomless pit. So that word bottomless pit, we now don't know, don't we, is not the word uh, bottomless pit. It's the abyss. They had a king over the a caliph, which is the messenger. That's the idea of the angels of the abyss, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, and in the Greek, Apollyon. The word Abaddon is the word destroyer the word in Hebrew, and the word Apollyon is the word destroyer in Greek. So we ask the question, why do we need it in Hebrew and in Greek? Well, where, when they came out of Saudi Arabia, which city fell in 634? Can you remember? No, Damascus. Which city fell in 637? Jerusalem. So the first place they came to was Israel and the land of the Jews. In the Hebrew tongue, it's Abaddon. But in the Greek tongue, Apollyon. Before they then move out of uh, that territory and throughout the, 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 the territory of uh, Rome and where Greek uh, would be used in those Gentile territories. And so that's the suggestion for why we have Abaddon in the Hebrew and Apollyon second in the Greek. Okay. One woe is past, and it's ten to nine. And behold, there came two woes hereafter. The sixth angel sounded. I heard a voice from the four horns of the altar, golden altar before God. So the prayers of the saints, verse 13, are lifted up, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, loose the four angels, which are bound at the great river Euphrates. So we understand that the four angels are loosed. And those angels are bound at the great river Euphrates. The river Euphrates talks to us of which territory? Where does the Euphrates start? Which country today? Turkey. So these, the four angels, the messengers, which are bound in the great, this is a symbol again, don't forget, they're bound in this territory. From the year 1057 until the fall of Constantinople in 1453, we see these major powers coming out of the great river Euphrates, out of the Turkish Empire. So you can look at these uh, again online, the Seljukians, the Mughals, the Tartars, then finally the Ottomans. So I've just noted in my margin next to verse 14 who these four angels are, or next to verse 15. So they're, they're, they're unloosed. The four angels were loosed which have been prepared for an hour, a day, a month, a year to slay the third part of men. So what's going on? These angels have been preparing for an hour, a day, a month, and a year. Now, I want you to note the word year here. It doesn't say time, which we often translate as being as a year. And we often think of time in biblical prophetic language as 360 days but we're told a year so we think of a year that we know today 365 days a month 30 days a day 
a day. An hour, a twelfth of a day. So we don't want to worry too much about that hour for a second, although um, many Bible students you know, would, would show us something that, that is interesting um, about that additional month. But I just want you to note in its simplest form what we've got here. One year, 365 days. One month, 30 days. So let's do the math together. 365 out of 30. 395. Beck's giving me the eyes to say, no, no, no. She's not ready for maths, but we're going to make her do it. 365 out of 30 is 395. Add one is 396. Add a 12th, though, in other words, one hour, uh, or the 12th of the, the, the day, 12th of the year, one month. So we've got 396. 396 days. When we then say, how many, we use the prophetic symbol from Ezekiel, it's not 396 days, it's 396. Yes. What year, so remember 396, does everyone remember 396 years? What year did Constantinople fall? 1453. So that's the year that the eastern leg collapses. But these angels have been preparing for 396 years, we're told, and a month. 396 years. So we now have to do a, a calculation. We go 1453 minus 396. So those of you who got a phone with a calculator on it, go 1453 minus 396 equals what does it equal what does it come to just amazing it comes to the year 1057 now that is so important because actually historians this historian george finley is writing at the turn of the century from the 1700s into the 1800s. So over 200 years ago. And he writes two volumes of the history of the Byzantine Empire. The first is on the right there from AD 717 to 1057. The second from 1057 to 1453. That this date of 1057 is a date when uh, a key ruler, uh, Togul Beg, was ruling in Turkey. And it's just amazing to me that this is the time period that's given for the preparation when from 1057 onwards, we read of the Seljukians, the Mughals, the Tartars, the Ottomans, until we come to the collapse and the fall of Constantinople. So you need to keep a note of that. We note then in verse 15, our time's going, we're going to really shift on here, that the judgments are going to come to slay the third part of men. Well, the empire at this time is split basically into three. And we'll look at this when we look, God willing, at chapter 13 of Revelation, when more detail is given to us about some of these time periods. And we read in chapter 13 of three beast systems 
we read of the dragon power, which is the Eastern system, which is the, what Revelation 9, the judgments are coming upon, the Byzantine Empire. We read of the beast of the earth, the Holy Roman Empire, further out in the West, in sort of France, Germany. And in the middle, we read of the papacy, which is described in Revelation 13 as the image of the beast. So when it says the third part of men, the note you should perhaps make next to verse 15, or you might like to make, is you've got sort of European West, the beast of the earth territory, the Holy Roman Empire. You've then got the middle, which is sort of Italy, um, the papal states, uh, the image of the beast. And then you've got the dragon power in the east, which is the third part that's now being destroyed as the four angels are going to be unloosed. And we read in verse 16 that the number of the army of the horsemen was 200,000,000. I heard the number of them. This is a massive number. It's a symbolic number of millions. And it's you know, not about the fact that there are literally millions, but it's just a massive army now. We've seen these Saracens like locusts a few hundred years before. And now as these different Turkish tribes, um, these, Islamic, these Islamic groups start battering for hundreds of years the Byzantine Empire, at the end, when the Ottomans come along, Constantinople, the eastern capital of Rome, is going to fall. We read in verse 17, And thus I saw the horse in the vision, and them that sat on having breastplates of fire, and of jacinth, of brimstone, the heads of the horses were the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire, by the smoke, by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. Their powers in their mouth and their tails. Their tails were like serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. Well, ultimately, Constantinople would fall. And they would fall by the hand of the Ottomans. The Islamic power now would take control of the eastern leg of Nebuchadnezzar's image, the eastern side of the empire. And the historians have got a huge amount to tell us about the fall of Constantinople. But there's some key detail which is so interesting when we compare it with what we've just read. So you can see there the date, the 29th of May, 1453. We see that the fall of Constantinople, the history books tell us, marked the end of the Byzantine Empire and effectively the end of the Roman Empire. So this is the eastern leg falling. But now look at this. The conquest of Constantinople and the fall of the Byzantine Empire was a key event of the late Middle Ages and is sometimes considered the end of the medieval period. The city's fall also stood as a turning point in military history. This is what I want you to note. Since ancient times, cities and castles had depended upon ramparts and walls to repel invaders. However, Constantinople's substantial fortifications were overcome with the use of gunpowder, specifically in the form of large cannons and bombards. So, for the first time, really, in history, gunpowder was used. 
Now the Saracens, so the Saracens are what we see in chapter 9, verse 1 to 11. But then, of course, it's the Ottomans and or the, the, the others that are part of the four angels, but ultimately the Ottomans that we see then killing Constantinople at the end of chapter 9. The Saracens were renowned for their use of fire. So that's why they had tails in verse 10 like unto scorpions and there were stings in their tails and the picture is of a horse bringing as it were a cannon and of course the horse would turn around and so the tail would have the sting in it the fire that would come out but although the saracens used fire they didn't use gunpowder and so that's why in verses 17 18, we see this emphasis again and again on the fire, the brimstone, the fire, the smoke, the brimstone, the fire, the smoke, the brimstone, which comes out of their mouths. And the, their power, we read verse 19, is in their mouth and in their tails. Their tails were like serpents, now heads, and with them they do hurt. As the cannons were turned round, so they would hurt as the fire and brimstone of gunpowder would come shooting out of it and Constantinople fell. To me, it's simply remarkable that the biblical record written 1,500 years or so, not quite that much, before the fall of Constantinople, He's picking out the fact that they're going to perish by fire and brimstone, by the smoke of the gunpowder from the cannons coming out of the Ottoman military. Okay, so verse 20 we read, that the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which neither see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorcery, nor of their fornications, nor of their thefts. So despite the fact that Rome fell, the rest of the men which weren't killed of these plagues, they didn't repent. The doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church kept being pushed and pushed by the, the Roman Catholic Church system as they continue to worship the works of their hands, the idols of gold, of silver, of brass, of stone, of wood, which could neither see nor hear nor walk. They were still far too interested in those things. Neither repented they of their murders, of the awfulness that the Roman beast system, which we'll look at more carefully um, when we come to chapter 11, 12, and 13, that beast system which murdered, which brought sorceries, nor their fornication, their thefts, they stole people. They stole away the truth from people. They didn't repent from any of those things. And so despite the fact the eastern leg of Rome has now fallen, Roman Catholicism still lives on 
the doctrine of the Trinity is still pushed. And most men are not repenting of the judgments that God brought upon the eastern leg of the empire. And sadly, the religion of Rome lives on. Okay, <clears throat> so a bit of homework. Next week, God willing, if we're still here, we shall look at chapter 10, which is a break from history. It's a vision. Uh, it's a vision of the kingdom. And there's three questions there to, to have a look at. The first is perhaps the easiest. Why is the angel clothed with a cloud? Just you need to remind yourself what the symbol of the cloud is. The, the, the second, our green chili, is the, the, where do we find in the Old Testament the seven thunders? I'll give you a clue, it's in the Psalms. And what links can you find between the Psalm and Revelation 10, or any of the events perhaps that the Psalm is talking about uh, to Revelation 10? Uh, and then uh, another, perhaps a little bit more challenging one. Why would John's belly have felt bitter when he eats the book, despite the fact the book tasted of honey? So it's a bit of a riddle for you uh, to, to, to work out why his belly felt bitter despite he's eating the book, which tasted sweet like honey. Okay, so that's your homework. 